I'm Asan, and this is the Friday Show. City finally lost a game of football this week, and joining me to explain why this is in fact a good thing, I've got Howard and Steve. Morning, Steve. Good morning. I haven't stopped celebrating the loss since. <laughs> <laughs> good lad. Good lad. Howard, how are you? Yeah, I'm okay, thanks. Very good. Now, I know it's early. That reasoning, anyway. (laughs) I know it's early in the morning, Howard, but I'm going to try and keep you uh, keep you lively this morning. Let's put it that way. So I'm going to triple coffee here. I'll be. Yeah, I'm going to start with you for the opening question. Opening question is this: Would you sign a player in January if you were City and Pep? And if so, for which position? Can only be one player. I don't want the name of the player. I just want to know which position you'd buy a player in if you were City or Pep. If indeed you would buy a player. Okay. Well, traditionally, I'm out. I'm a. I'm not big on January transfers because I feel it's the the panic window, so to speak. The way I see it is uh, the position left back. I know there's. Yes, obviously we need Fernandinho replacement or cover, or backup, or help for him. We do need a striker. Left-back, I think, is becoming an issue even more now, not just because of Mendy's injuries, but because I do think there's something in Pep getting frustrated with Mendy anyway, even if he was fit. Uh, obviously, something that can be rectified quite easily. That's down to Mendy himself. But we probably need, we need another one anyway. So it's left-back for me. Only, I am not that I'm not I don't think see it as desperate I'm sorry I just you know if we have to get by we have to get by the way I see it is we should have identified who we want whenever we buy this this player we should have identified it by January if that player is available in January then fair enough you get them as soon as possible uh, if not you wait to the summer and it's mm. obviously harder to get a player I don't want us just to buy a left back for cover for three months I'm always against getting cover now we're just too good a side to be doing. Stuff that's like not that. really the that that's not really the angle that I'm coming from, though. I'm I, know, I know I'd be a completely different angle. Back. I'm saying yeah. we identify a left back and get him as soon as possible. If that's January, fair enough. Wonderful. If, if there's an option to get a a backup left back in January, then no, we don't do anything for me. Wonderful. Stay. What about for you? Completely agree as regards to um, cover and bringing in someone short term. That's not for us. We're past that stage. Um, I personally would love to see us go out, balls out, and get you know a, a real top class holding midfielder. It's simply not going to happen. Uh, you look at the options. You look at the the two who are you're supposedly on our radar, De Jong and Dombele. Neither are going to come in January. And should you know De Jong should we out muscle Barcelona and, and kind of get him, then he's not going to come in in January. It's going to be a case of next summer anyway. So uh, right now. Can't anticipate any major signings this January. Who do we need? As Howard identified, a left-back competition, I would say, for Fernandinho rather than cover, and a striker. I can't see any of those three coming in in January. Um, Would I like that to happen? Of course I would, because the games are going to start piling up and we're already encountering kind of injury concerns. And I think our injury concerns... It can be looked at two ways. On one hand, you think, okay, with you know David Silva and with kind of you know, Fernandinho and with Arrest and with Sergio as well, we're seeing kind of not serious injuries. We can kind of persist through the season, but it's the nature of those injuries what do concern because it just brings it home to us that these players have played an awful lot of football over the course of their career, mm. and perhaps physically they're just starting to go on the other side of that cusp. And they're on a downward trajectory and wear and tear are now take, making an impact. In which case, that's a concern when you've got kind of, you know, five months ahead of frantic, unrelenting football. So let me ask you a loaded question then. Um, has Guardiola not managed those players properly? So Aguero, David Silva and Fernandinho. If you look at the number of games that they've played since the season began, the number of minutes that they've played since the season began, and the fact that all three of them, unless I'm mistaken, have types of muscle injuries that you can imagine have come from a pileup of fatigue. Um, has Pep not managed this properly? Um, I would certainly say that was the case with Fernandinho. I, I think there has been two, three, arguably four occasions this season 
when we could have took him out, we could have put in, you know, a Delph or a Gundogan or, or whoever, as, you know, in that particular fixture and still prevailed in that fixture. Um, and that makes it a, a big difference, of course, you know, to someone of Fernandinho's age. Um, he's, he himself has spoke about how he's now being subbed on the 82nd minute and, you know, how Pep's looking after him in that regard and how he's okay with that happening. Personally, I, I would, you know, rather he didn't start at all in certain fixtures um, because, as, as you know, I know I'm already repeating myself, but when you look at what's ahead of us, potentially, if we do fight on all four fronts, then, you know, it, by him kind of playing one game a week leading up to that, that would be hugely beneficial in comparison to him playing two games a week, which is what he has been. Mm. Okay. Okay. Howard, do you want to chime in on that? Do you, do you think that there's a conversation to be had about the way in which Pep may have managed those three in particular? Well, I, and I, I, just to kind of drill down a little bit, I think the reason that I've phrased the question in the way that I've phrased it is because we do have quite a deep squad and you have to, you have to take Pep at face value back in the summer when he was asked, for example, about Fernandinho's position, he was quite, you know, adamant that he had lots of options in the squad and that it wasn't, you know, missing out on Jorginho was not a catastrophe. So having said that, has he kind of made a rod for his own back in playing Fernandinho almost into the ground by December? Yeah, well, you know, from the outside, I agree with you. It's been, you know, it's like, surely, how many previews we've done with where we've said... Yeah, I'd rest Fernandinho for this one, but he's going to play him, isn't he? Uh, and then he did. But at the end of the day, I can't answer it because I don't see the medical records. Uh, yeah, so we know that they have players that go into, they have coloured zones or whatever. I know if the player's in the red, then he needs rest immediately. If Fernandinho's just hitting, you know, if his stats are just peak all the time, then there's no reason to rest him as such. Uh, when you start showing fatigue, that's when you, you know, and we should have, we've got signed. We have science on our side here, top technology. We should know when he's fatigued at all times. We should know when any player is showing signs of fatigue. And at that point, that player has to be rested because obviously that just makes injury more likely. But I mean, if Fernandinho is not showing any signs, then he'll keep playing him. And of course, a fully fit, energetic player can still pick up a muscle injury. So <clears throat> unless it depends on what he's been doing, you know, He's been ignoring that sort of thing, and I don't think he would. So we can't truly answer that question. But I mean, coming up, uh, Steve said we're fighting on four fronts. Well, three of them you can forget Fernandinho because he won't play in the Carabao Cup. Surely he won't play against Rotherham in the FA Cup, and the next round's the end of January. You know, assuming we get through. Uh, in the Champions League, I don't know, is it February the knockout starts? Or, so, yeah. yeah, everything's months away for... So it's just the league for Fernandinho now, but of course it's the league at its busiest period. Uh, he's got to rest. Yeah, we can't play him every four days, surely, whatever the, the science tells us. So, yeah, we don't we don't know, do we? We're doing this before the press conference, just if Fernandinho's had a, just been a precaution during the week when he shouldn't have played yeah. anyway, even if he was fit and wouldn't have won, wanted him on the pitch. Mm. Uh, yeah, we've all said it before. He's the one that stands out. I can't, I don't see... Laporte played every game, but obviously everyone seemed fine with that. It didn't seem as though he was tiring doing that. And he no, finally got a rest last week. Fernandinho is the one that stands out. And yes, I would have given him at least three games during... Three games he's played in, at least I would have rested him because I don't think, because we were so much better than the opposition anyway. So mm, I don't think you can compare it to Laporte because yeah. I'm talking about three players who are 30 plus, um, yeah. as opposed to kind of with the with the young lads. I kind of get it; um, they can play every three four days. But you know, um, unless unless there's a, a physio or a doctor who's going to tell me it's not true that the older you get the more susceptible you become to muscle injuries but you know and it's not to be overly critical of Pep either that's why I said to stay at the top it's kind of a loaded question I think the way the injuries have befallen us in the last sort of eight or nine days makes it very easy to kind of point that finger and make that accusation but as Howard says we don't really know behind the scenes what's going on uh, right let's look back at Chelsea and why 
that defeat was actually a good thing. <laughs> Stephen, could you uh, could you tell me why that defeat was a good thing? Um, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was an awful um, defeat because I personally very, very much in a minority of blues here and I hold my hands up to this. Um, and I've, I've had criticism online from doing this last season as well. I want to see City be invincible. And I think that is that was possible last season. And I think that was possible this season. And I know a lot of City fans disagree with that. And I know it's the big unspoken, it's the big no-no. You don't mention it until you've got maybe like eight games to go and it, it looms in the distance then. But no, I was starting to think this is possible this year. We can go through this season unbeaten. So in that aspect, that was a big dash to to my hopes because, um, yeah, that's immortality right there. And mm. it was it was possible. Very, extremely hard, but that's the whole nature of it. That's why you're you know immortal because you've you've done something which is well only ever been done once before, unless you include Preston in a in a twelve kind of club season. Um, so that side, it was it was awful in many other ways as well. It was against Chelsea. That that sucked. Um, it's never nice to lose to Chelsea. Um, but you could argue that it took an awful lot of pressure off us and it took a lot of... In terms of like the media narrative, and apologies for using that awful word, but in terms of that, then it was beneficial and it was a good thing because it just took everyone's gaze over towards Liverpool. It made us mortal again in the eyes of the media. It got rid of lots of silly, stupid kind of storylines about us, how we were ruining the league and all the rest of it. Um, so there were benefits in that regard, but in practical, you know, purely practical terms, we've lost three points there and we're no longer top and we've got a very tough game, which we'll talk about soon against Everton this weekend. Um, so no, you know, there were no real benefits. There never is to losing a game. Hmm. You did kind of make some, but you did, you did at the end there point out the reasons why it probably in the medium term isn't a bad thing that we lost that game. I don't think that the, uh, I don't think the narrative as it, as it was beginning to build around city and I'm not po- apologizing for using that word because I use it in almost every podcast. Um, I don't think the narrative that was building around city was necessarily a good thing because I think that the players are quite young or the squad is quite young. I'm not sure that it can completely um, drown the narrative out. Uh, And I just felt like the kind of in the lead up, we weren't quite as good as we have been in the build up to the Chelsea game. And I felt like we probably in hindsight now looking at it, I kind of feel like it's probably done us a good thing to lose that because I think that it will re-remind everybody in the squad that, you know, you can win loads and loads and loads of games and everybody can say that you're the best thing ever. But until Liverpool lose a game, you're in a position where you lose one and they've gone top of the table. So the job over the rest of the season is, in my opinion, refocused simply by losing and Liverpool going above you because it completely changes your... I imagine for the squad, it completely changes the perspective of what they've done up until that point. Because I imagine a week before that, there was probably a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say complacency, but they would have felt very relaxed about the position that they were in. And I don't necessarily think that's a good thing either. I, I, um, sorry, just to balance that out, though, Isan, um, yeah. because I, I, yeah, I partly agree with that. But just to balance that out, like a pet theory of mine is, and this is completely undermined by the undeniable fact that, and I, I will say the word complacency, because there just isn't a better word or isn't a more suitable word. Yeah. Um, but I think complacency has set in to an extent. So what I'm about to say is completely undermined by that. But my pet theory is that last season and this, what drives this team on, as you say, a young squad as well, is the desire to break records is the desire to make their mark in history. And you can guarantee that's what Pep is telling them each and every day. It's like, you can be history makers here. Um, And I'm not just talking about being invincible here. I'm just talking about being the very best that you can be and to be better than every other great football team of the last 25 years. So losing a game is not good in that regard, is it? So it's, um, you know, I, I feel that has kind of driven 
the side on anyway that need to be impeccable and on another pl- planet to everyone else. Can I, okay. Asan, can I ask you then? Go ahead. Well, actually, no, I'll save it for the, the Everton preview, I think. Okay. It's, it's because it's the opposite of complacency. It's, are we under pressure now? But we can leave it for the preview. Yeah, we'll, so. we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that yeah. when, we talk, when we talk about the Everton game. Um, just very quickly, Howard, do you think that, I've seen this in a few places this week, do you think that Pep has a tendency to overthink big games? Uh, possibly. Or are we overthinking a defeat? Yeah, well, I mean, the accusation comes historically has come in Champions League games when it gets to the crunch games in the knockout. Uh, and yes, I think there is some truth to that because, I mean, we'll see what he does this year in big games. I mean, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And obviously, he, ha- he did have a problem against Chelsea that. If Jesus was banging in form and hitting goals in left, right and centre, there was no overthinking to be done there. Uh, so you can understand why he thought, I, I need something different in this game. And to be honest, Chelsea did the same, surely. They, mm. you know, they've got an out, they've got Morata, who's, you know, <laughs> the definition of out of form. Uh, and Giroud, who I like, but isn't a goal, you know, he's not a big goal scorer, he's more a support striker. Uh so they had the same problem. They did the same thing. So we can't really blame it for defeat because we put one chance away in that first half and we're talking about a tactical masterclass. Uh, I think there was, you know, there were certain situations here that that were different. But, you know, and in the league, a lot, 90% of the time, we don't have to overthink things. Uh, but we will see how it progresses because I think it's in the Champions League that he really... We need to just stick with our principles and put out the team, the strongest team, and not, yeah, not start putting players out of position, ask them to do different things, and trying, trying to do something the players have not done before. So, the other thing about the Chelsea lineup for me is it was it had all the hallmarks of Pep overthinking, and yet it was an exception to the rule because the times he does that, and that for me is his singular flaw, is. He tends to overthink against opposition that has previously beaten him. And, you know, that nags at him and, and that kind of unnerves him. You know, he, he can't take that. He can't kind of um, make sense of that, that someone has kind of, you know, beaten him. And so he'll overthink to try and kind of find a way around it. Now, against Chelsea, look at us against them last season in those two two games. You know, we were by far and away the superior side. And against Sarri, it was played 5-1-5. So... He had no reason to overthink it on this occasion, and, and that was what I found odd. I don't think he overthought it. I think that um, I went into the, I went into that Friday show saying that Jesus mm. shouldn't start. I could completely understand why Jesus wouldn't start. So I don't think that I don't think that that conversation. I don't think that that decision came out of left field. And I don't think that it was a case of Guardiola trying to overthink something. I think it was simply a case of going, that player's not in form. This is a really important game. These three players are in form. Um, And I also, I don't, I think, I kind of agree. Like The only time in, uh, unless I'm mistaken, the only time where I've really gone, why did you do that? And then it's really come back and looked a bit dumb was um, Gundogan, at Liverpool. At Liverpool. Yeah. It's the only time that I've kind of looked at a, a, a decision and gone, oh, you've overthought that and I don't really understand why you've done it. And then on top of that, it's not worked. I think that if you look at the opening 43, 44 minutes against Chelsea, I mean, you know, I think if those players show a little bit more um, composure in the in their final actions, Guardiola's completely vindicated so, so yeah, I was just quite surprised that so many people felt that that was a case of him overthinking a big game because for me, it, it really wasn't. Um, okay, look, the other thing that came out of that game, Howard, me and you have talked about it. Steve, yeah. I kind of want to hear your thoughts on it because I don't really think we've spoken about it, is the fallout from the the Sterling, um, the, the kind of the racist abuse that he suffered yeah. at Chelsea. And kind of before we get into that, I hope you don't mind me saying this, the reason I want to have this conversation with you or why I wanted to ask you about it is because, you know, I think that we forget that there was a lot of scepticism around Sterling, not just uh, before he signed, but after he signed. 
Um, and me and you had some discussions, some months, maybe well into his first season at City, um, where you felt that he wasn't good enough. Would that be a fair thing to say, or am I mischaracterizing? I, I, when he signed for for City, I um, I was saying that he there was kind of flaws in the in the basics of his game. Um, I could see what kind of he offered. Uh, I could see, you know, kind of his, his good points. Um, but I just felt kind of, um, it really could come down to basics for me. And so it concerned me that he still had those kind of failings at the age that he was, because normally you'd expect that to be coached out of someone at the age of kind of 13, 14. Um, so that was a concern for me. I mean, no offense, but you do bring this up a lot, and and within the space <laughs> of about within like six months, I was completely kind of uh, bowled over and said, "Okay, I was wrong here." And about certainly a, a year down the line, because the last thing to go for me was his finishing. That was a, that that persisted to be a concern for me. But um, within say twelve months, it was a case of okay, I can see, you know, that I was wrong. In fact, I, I said to you and Damo on Twitter that I was wrong. So it's um, and we all are wrong. You know, we all have times where we no, but it's not. To, it's not. It's really not to dig you out. It's just to begin to. I I just think that there. I think that the accurate portrayal of Sterling's evolution certainly from when he said that he wanted to leave Liverpool into his City career, is that even when he came to City, even when he started at City, even now when you actually listen to supporters who go to the game every week, you'll see that in the ground, weirdly enough, there's still a lot of Sterling is shit. Yeah. And he still takes a lot. I don't want to say he takes a lot of abuse from from the home crowd, but there's certainly an element of scepticism which still surrounds him. Um, does that, do you think that that's a byproduct of who he is, the kind of the, the media portrayal of him going back to his time at Liverpool? Or do you think it's justified? Do you think in a way, because of everything that Raz has gone through, that we're a bit overprotective of him? And because of that, we're not prepared to have a conversation about flaws that he may have within his game. And I appreciate that this isn't really a conversation about racism, but it's definitely a conversation about Raheem Sterling, the footballer, and how the the impression and the judgment of him as a footballer um, is, I feel anyway, connected to things that he hasn't done on the pitch. And I'm wondering whether that's because I'm overly protective of him. Does that make sense, what I've just said to you? It does. I, I, I would say that... As regards, purely as regards to City fans, because I've seen this myself, I've, I've I've heard it around me at grounds and 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 it annoys. But purely as regards to City fans, I would say you're overthinking it, mate. I would personally say suggest at least that it's it's mainly down to his position, and it's mainly down to the fact that he's a winger and it's his role to kind of you know take on players and create things and do fantastical things. Um, I would suggest that you know Leroy could easily. Um, receive the same kind of, um, you know, moans and groans if he did what Raheem sometimes does. But they're different players. That's no criticism whatsoever, Raheem Sterling. It's just that Raheem's whole game is that basically, you know, two times out of ten he'll kind of make the wrong decision. But if he didn't make that wrong decision two times out of ten, he wouldn't make the right decisions eight times out of ten. That's who he is. That's the kind of player he is. Um, It's kind of... It's hard to explain, but for me, that's where it, that's where I lie with it. it. It's kind of the type of player he is, and the position that he plays. I don't think it's actually anything to do with the whole Sterling thing beyond the Etihad. Um, I don't think it's overprotectionism, and I don't think it's um, the opposite of that, where you know people may be of kind of influenced by the media. I, I purely do think that it's because it's uh, a slight of build winger who kind of has a funny little running style and looks kind of lackadaisical at times. Um, well, he's not. It's just that's, you know, how he plays as a footballer. Mm. Um, that's one of his strengths, in fact, you know, because in the same way as his decision-making, if he wasn't that type of player, he wouldn't confound fullbacks in the manner that he does. Yep. Um, so I think it's mainly that. Um, it's, a, it's a fair shout, that I... I 
I definitely, I, I like the, I like you saying that I'm overthinking it because I think from the day that Sterling joined City, in some respects, I've probably overthought his everything that he's done because I was maybe a bit more of a fanboy when he was at Liverpool because I really did rate him super highly. So. Well, I mean, he, I'm sorry, to, just, just to round off, though, I mean, a perfect example for me is against Manchester United last season, 2-0 up at half-time. Um, now, I, I don't want to kind of uh, kind of reveal anything. I've been told certain things that I don't want to kind of say because, you know, I'll be uh, breaking confidence here. But let's just say that people weren't happy with him at half-time for the chances that he'd missed. And I'm not talking about supporters here. Um, now... If you look at the manner of his missed chances, they look so casual. They look like he was taking a piss. They look like he didn't care. Now, of course, that's not true. We all know that's not true. He's a professional footballer playing in a derby. He wants to score against De Gea. He wants to score against Manchester United. But the manner of his misses, that is is a kind of a perfect example for me of why he gets kind of like the moans and groans. Because it looks more casual than it is. But it's because he's so casual, it's... That's how, you know, he scores so many goals that he does and, and is as good a player as he, as he is. Mm. Howard, do you want to chime in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, right, I'll start at the beginning then. I think he was, our judgment was clouded, obviously. Now, I don't have a photographic memory, as I'm sure you've been well aware for many years on this podcast. <laughs> but his weakest time at City was his early months at City. So obviously he took time to settle and he's got better and better is how I see his time at City. Uh, so if we consider that, you know, his, his weakest performances were in the early days, you had, I think we were clouded. You say it's lots of little things like, you know, the way he acts or falls over and looks like he's going to cry and people just take in little things like, I mean, a thousand footballers do it. Well, virtually every footballer does that now, falls over and looks like they've been shot. You know, and cries. Dave Zeus does it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and people people subconsciously take on, and I'm sure I don't want I'm not doing an anti Liverpool thing, but the thing about the fee I think is relevant here, and all saying that Ibe's better and they're overpaid and Liverpool were have got a great deal here. I think it did seep into a lot of fans when he didn't arrive and didn't immediately start putting in world class performances, which we shouldn't have expected because what he was 21 at the time. Uh, mm-hmm then I think it did seep in for a while that we had been, we'd overpaid for someone and it took time. And as he got better and what clouds it more than anything is missing easy chances in front of goal. Yeah. And that honestly, it just, it's unbelievable that, you know, when a, normally strikers get away with murder in a way, you know, Aguero can miss a chance, but a goalkeeper makes a mistake and, you know, they're useless. But with him, they were, you know, they were just slicing wide from five yards or completely misconnecting. And it just plays in the, it seeps into the subconscious and so many arguments with City, fellow City fans in those early two years. I mean, I remember a post on a message board, people discussing where he'd, his next club would be and people saying Stoke for 10 million. And that's what people were, think, were actually saying about him, City fans, after, you know, a year into him being at the club. Mm. Uh, and it just, it just, take little instances and it, it seeps, you know, and it clouds everything else. They don't look at his movement. All they're interested in is pure stats and pure moments and not his movement, his uh, intelligence, his, if, is he developing his age? You know, these things just, they work. You know, just campaigns work, media campaigns work. And I think it took a while until, until it was clear to everyone that he's a class act. For that to can be wiped a, out a lot of City uh, fans' minds. Can I put a theory forward to you, Howard? Something that I've I've said often um, on this podcast. I think. Um, do you think that if we'd that if Sterling was you know German or French and we'd signed it and we'd signed him for the same fee, do you think there'd be the same kind of cynicism around him and his early days? I guess what I'm trying to get at is that I I wonder sometimes whether when we sign players from other Premier League clubs. Because of the tribalism that you live through on a you know season by season basis, it's very hard sometimes to go from going you know Carl Walker's a Balland or Ryan Sterling's a Balland to they're one of ours now. Is is there an element of that? 
Yeah, of course, because of what I said before, that the fee would not have been discussed as much if we'd paid £50 million to, well, <laughs> I think of Kevin De Bruyne in that Daily Mirror back page, but it was still... It, <laughs> no, but that was one, that's one thing, and, and Paul Merson having one ridiculous comment on Soccer Saturday. You know, they talk drivel every week, so it, it's irrelevant in a way. It's... There wouldn't have been, you know, if we'd signed him off Wolfsburg for fifty million, it would have nowhere near as much uh, attention. And he was a young, you know, if we'd signed Royce, for example, for fifty million, no one would be. It wouldn't have got any sort of uh, exposure as this did. The fallout wouldn't have been as big, and I think we'd have given the player a bit more time as well. So it's it's highly relevant the way he came to City. Mm. Okay, cool. And, um, and just one final thing. The fans that criticised him, there was some merit there, but it was just to me, it was blindly obvious, blatantly obvious to me that he was going to get better, that this mm. was not what he was going to be for the rest of his career. That's why I would argue. I mean, well. it was just so obvious to me that he could iron his out, he was focused, he was ambitious, and it wasn't going to be a long term problem. And yet, some thought that it would. You know, I'm not trying to be clever after the event, it just. It really did look obvious to me at, at the time. I've got loads of these wrong. I still think Bojanov's going to come good. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I'm still upset about that now. But, you know, with Sterling, it was clear to me that he was going to get better and better and better. So, uh, if, only, if, if, only the, if only the Bojan have uh, snapped his Achilles tendon, right? Well, yeah. Can we sign him up in January? <laughs> Back <laughs> Well, we've got our we've got our title for this pod anyway. <laughs> Excellent. Um, can I just I finally say I think Pellegrini did restrict him in that first season as well. You saw examples where Raz was one on one with a fullback, and he he's kind of thinking, okay, what does the manager want me to do? And he was kind of it felt a little bit kind of constrained. He wasn't uh, you know on top of everything else when you think of you know, all the pressure that was on him as well, and that was not ideal. Not blaming mm. Pellegrini, but that is a factor. Um, and also I think. Because at the top, I think what we wanted to talk about was the incident at Chelsea last week. Um, I think this week has been very, very important as regards to the, the whole sorry tale. Um, very important indeed. And we're now finally getting the big guns coming out, the actual big, you know, big name journalists coming out and stating, and you know, not only about the react, um, the treatment that Raheem Sterling gets in the media, but they're attributing it to racism, which is very important indeed. So. Um, it was an awful thing to see at Chelsea, but hopefully that might well just be the, the kind of, you know, the Venadir, the, if you like, and from here it might just get better. I think it's the beginning of the re- rehabilitation of, of Raheem Sterling's image, and I think that he's shown a maturity. Yeah, um, absolutely. In the way that he handled this, uh, which, again, it just makes me really proud because I think that he's a player who could have gone in the other direction. He could have let it all get into his head. Um, I think the Gary Neville conversation was really moving and quite poignant when you when you think about Sterling and who he is and where he was in his career at that point. For him to go into Neville and and to basically go, why me? Why do they keep coming at me like this? Yeah. I, uh, I, oh, no, I, I agree. And I, I, know, I, I know what Steve's I, about to I, say. I do not want to target Gary Neville because that would be incredibly unfair to do so because really, you know, I'm talking about 50 or 100 people here, so it's not fair to identify one person. And to be to give him credit, you know, he was candid in what he said last week as well, Gary Neville. But that pisses me right off. That whole, you know, the anecdote that he, he told, um, you know, the kind of story he related there. So people in the media and in football have known for two years now that this is racial abuse that Raheem Sterling's getting as regards to the stories in the mail and the sun, it's not a case of, you know, oh, it's just a, it's a young footballer. Why is he being targeted? Why it's, we've been saying, all of us have been saying that this is racist at its heart. Racism is behind all this. And they've known that too. Why have they not come out and condemn this before now? Why? It's, I, I, I don't want to swear on the Friday show. It's sick, is what it is. It's he does disgusting. ask that question of himself. I mean, he I does. Think, That's why I don't want to blame him. But uh, what, uh, I'm talking about the, the big guns as well. All the kind of and again, I don't want to name names because it's not fair. I'm talking about 150 old people here. I'm talking about rock journalists who are established in their in their profession. They've got nothing to fear. 
they can you know they can turn on their kind of employers and say this is wrong they they they're not going to get get the boot you know they're not looking after their own job and their own livelihood here uh, and I'm talking like Gary Neville it's got loads of influence and he is secure in his his job at Sky and furthermore he wouldn't even be kind of relating to Sky when he when he says such things why has he not come out in the last couple of years and say what what Raheem Sterling's getting is racial abuse and it needs to stop I think I mean I, yeah okay I think you're I think you're right in the sense that it's it does feel a little bit like why is it taken for him to come out and say this for all of you to stand up and go yeah it's true why why, why has this been going you know what I mean like I I completely get that side of it but you know what for me I also look at it and go well and how I'd be interested to know what you think on this just that for me I felt as though there was something honest and credible about the way that Neville spoke. And in particular, there was a regret in yeah, yeah. in his in his voice and in what he said. And the fact that he opened that bit by saying, I actually had to ring Raheem yesterday and, and make sure it was okay for me to tell this story. Again, it that speaks volumes about how it must have made Neville feel. And I can't imagine that conversation was easy. I can't imagine calling Sterling. No, no, no I, 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 you know, I said, stated at the top, this is unfair to kind of, you know, level this purely yeah. going, because it's not, it's just, he was the most high profile person to, to come out and say this this week. But journalists have this week come out and, and said, you know, oh, this is, this is wrong. This has been going on for too long. They've known it's been going on for too long and they've kept quiet. And it well, sickens me. It sickens it, me. It, I see what you're saying. I've, I've written articles for for like two and a half, three years now about this, and I'm a blogger. I am nothing compared to them. I have like a tiny little tin cup to, to shout from, and they have a huge megaphone from the top of a building to shout from. And I've been looked down on by people, you know, these, these journalists, and they've, they've dismissed me. Oh, you're a city blogger. You're kind of having a rant in a rail. It's got nothing to do with racism. Oh, you're just you're paranoid and all the rest of it. Bullshit. We've known from the start. Liverpool fans have known early. They've got on board early. When I've written about Raheem Sterling, the treatment he gets by the, the scum and, and, and the male, Liverpool fans come over and say, yeah, this is wrong. This is despicable. United fans do. You go on United mm. forums and they've said it all. So this is all people, regardless of club allegiances, saying this is wrong. This is racial abuse that this lad's getting. And yet the biggest names in the, in the, in the profession have stayed dumb. And it's their mm. colleagues doing it. And it's wrong. They need to be called out for it. I feel that we should probably name check the people who haven't been quiet about it. Uh, I think Barry yeah. Glendening at The Guardian has been very, very, very vocal that he feels that Raheem Sterling is the um, victim of a racist campaign from the tabloids. Ollie Holt for me, and yet some of other people would disagree with that, but I've read articles going way back with Ollie Holt defending Raheem Sterling. Yep. Um, I think Daniel Storey's done loads, uh, yeah, or yeah, did yeah. do loads on Football 365. Uh, Henry Winter has maybe, maybe this week he's come out and said it very, very, very bluntly, but certainly on our podcast, um, when he spoke to us uh, towards the end of last season, he alluded to the fact that he felt that the treatment of Sterling was, you know, racist mm-hmm. within some, from, from some publications. And he's kind of, he's been much more explicit about that uh, this week. So there have been voices in the media who, who, who were prepared to say out loud what we've been saying for, for some time. But I think in the main, you're absolutely right. Too many of them have ignored it. Sorry, yeah. Howard. Do you want and, to chime and, in uh, here? And very lastly, I'm sorry for the rant as well, because it's something that's pissed me off now for so long. And and the way they've come out this week is like these kind of very, you know, mm, yes, it's, it's terrible, isn't it? You've known all this time. It's, you know, it, ah, I'll leave it. Yeah. <laughs> Howard? Uh, well, yeah, well, everything you said's right. I mean, Gary Neville could have kept the story quiet quite easily and just not said it. Uh, but it doesn't look good that it wasn't dealt with. It seems he's unprepared for his role at England. And, you know, as a lot of them were, to deal with an issue like this or to deal with a player coming to them and saying, I've got these problems. Uh, having said that, yeah, you can't lump it on him. At least he said it, he was honest. And more to the point, let's hope this is a turning point this week. It 
it is too late in a way. All the, the articles coming out now. There was there was quite a lot pro Sterling stuff a year ago. I think it did done without them coming out and being public about it. A lot of journalists realised about a year ago. Yeah, and there was some you know Sterling's doing well. You know some. And they always come out at the same time. It's as if, you know, it's all collective, isn't it? It's like they've been told, uh, no, this is, you know, this is unacceptable, the the the, the coverage of him. Uh, let's hope it's a turning point. But this week just shows again, uh, Chelsea's looking like being charged anti-Semitism chants at their away game last night. A Chelsea, I don't know who he is, a journalist, a Chelsea fan said that he's, Heard racist chanting at every match he's been to in the last 25 years. Now that sounds far fetched to me, but I don't go there, so how could I possibly know? And go to the replies, and you'll see we still have a problem here because of tribalism. How many fans saying that they've never heard anything in their life? And you think, of course you have. Come on, we know that club has a problem. Every club has a problem in a sense because every club contains some racists, and it's simple as that. And we know. Chelsea, you know, there are minority Chelsea fans who will make anti-Semitic chants like there are loads of different issues at other clubs. And now you've got Manuel Pellegrini coming out saying yesterday that Sterling shouldn't talk about it. He should uh, be quiet now because you give too much importance to stupid people with small minds if you continue to highlight racism. So there's so many minds still stuck in the the dark ages that uh, for Sterling, yeah, I think the important thing here, it, it is not up to Sterling to be a, a figurehead for cu- you know, cutting out racism in English society or football. It's not fair on him. Mm. Uh, he should be able to get on with his football now. And I hope what he's done by actually coming out and saying what he said last week will enable others to act and to open, open a lot of eyes uh, to the severity of the problem. Uh, especially to people like me, a middle-aged white person who has no idea what goes on every day for people who suffer racism. So, yeah, uh, I do. I'm waffling now, but I hope it is a turning point. But you'll never cut it out. We just, we just have to, as I said, you know, I said in a blog last week, it's the point where you've got people screaming abuse at a footballer as he goes to take a corner. At what point, we, we moan about sanitised football, but at what point... Where do we draw the line here? Why do we allow, allow that with a shrug of the shoulders and call it passion? Uh, mm. I think, I hope that what's happened this week, yeah. But that, you know, is a turning point. But in three days, they'll be reporting on Sterling getting his breakfast. So, <laughs> and if it's not him, it'll be someone else. And you just, well, the heavy son sigh, and on we go, and on we listen, go. Listen, the Sun have already done their editorial saying, uh, yeah. it's disgraceful the way that the media yeah. are being blamed it's like alright guys I mean that was one know. of the most pitiful editors I've ever yes. seen just, in my life and it just yes. shows I mean that's one person writing that but it's it shows that they literally have not taken on board anything and nothing will change so no, we but, can all we can do is highlight it Pellegrini's talking out of his arse to be honest uh, not talking about it what on earth will that solve it's I don't think racists are looking for publicity. They're just racist uh, and they should be highlighted. Uh, so we need to keep highlighting. We need to keep showing what the Sun and the Mail or whoever publish because people need to know what they're like. Mm. Um, final question. I just want a yes or no from both of you. Do you think that the booing of Sterling at opposition grounds will stop because of this story? Howard? Uh yeah, I mean, it's eased off a bit anyway. It's not, obviously, it was at its its peak about, I don't know, two years ago. And they'll say, we knew we had a problem when Norwich fans were booing him. And you're like, what on earth are you booing? <laughs> what yeah. the fuck has Ryan Sterling's Barely contract wrangles with Liverpool got to do yeah. with you? And what on Barely earth are you doing? Well. I mean, unbelievable. Uh, I think it has tailed off a bit anyway. Uh, I mean, he's been booed at an England match as well, which is staggering. Uh, it, it's eased off and it should ease off further now, yeah. Okay. Uh, unless, of course, he misses a crucial penalty at the next Euros, of course, in which case mm. it's uh, pizza adverts and death threats as per. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, what about for you? I think it'll lessen. I think uh, there's quite an interesting debate on Twitter this week from Everton fans. Um, some 
fan forum came out and said, just to let everyone know that Raheem Sterling will be booed this Saturday. And the reasons for that is because he's an ex-Liverpool player. Um, and they gave another two reasons kind of to say, you know, it's legitimate reasons for booing. And then Evertonians kind of in, in reply saying, well, let's just not. Let's just not because, you know, it'll be misinterpreted. If, I, if they are the reasons at this kind of climate where we are right now, uh, on this news story, it'll be misinterpreted. So that'll be quite interesting to see how Everton fans respond to him this weekend. Absolutely. Um, right, lads. I mean, I've got an agenda full of things to talk about, but 45 minutes into this podcast, I don't think we're going to get through all of those things. Um I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you talk to me about Phil Foden's Foden's performance against Hoffenheim. It's, um, it's Foden, eh, son? Eh, whatever it is, it's Stockport filter. Yeah. Why do? Um, you, oh, I was going to say, why do you call him Foden? Eh? Why do you call him Foden? Why wouldn't I call him Foden? It's from Foden. Stockport. Right, Who right. From Stockport's called Foden. Who? I mean, <laughs> well, he's sorry, is. but I mean, I appreciate the fact that Stockport is in Cheshire, and maybe in Alderley Edge they say Foden, but I'm fairly sure in Edgeley, Edgeley Park they say Foden. <laughs> no, Fair enough. Double D would be Foden. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Everybody's an English teacher. Anyway, Steve, what I'd like to know from you is whether we overhyped Phil's second half performance no. um, and where he is after that performance going into this weekend's game? It's it's kind of the most brilliant thing about his second half performance is that it wasn't a surprise and it's just a case of, you know, come on, Pep, play him because we want to see that because we know he's got it. There's, there's no, you know, it's really kind of quite pertinent we're talking about Phil Foden <laughs> um, <laughs> following straight after what we've talked about with Raheem and when Raheem initially joined the club. Because it's chalk and cheese, isn't it? You know, in terms of kind of with Foden, it's kind of well, you, you could argue that there's too much kind of hype being put onto him. Um, I would say no. I would say he really is a real deal. Mm-hmm. I've got no qualms, no concerns about him. I know how brilliant he's going to be, and I just can't wait to see that kind of manifest itself. Um, it was a bit annoying seeing a few straight passes in the first half, but not through. For the player, not for the manager, not for the club, not for the fans, but mm. just from the outsiders looking in, going, oh, hello. You know, and there wasn't a, an article in the Telegraph kind of slating his performance, obviously written beforehand, or that was the intention beforehand, and as soon as, you know, the first 20 minutes played out, he started writing his match report. So it was brilliant that he then put in a kind of a, an, a second half showing. Um, yeah, just love the lad. I do. Would you start him this Saturday? Um I mean, I don't know what the injury situation is like. Maybe he will have to start this weekend. I would, because I'd I'd like him to build on what he did in the second half. And I yeah. think that yeah. what he did in the second half was because he, you know, the more games he plays, the more rhythm he'll get. Um, and he's barely played any games. And for that reason, I'd give him the chance against a, what will be a very tough challenge against Everton. But I personally, I don't think that... I don't think that Guardiola will do that. Um, Howard. Yes. <laughs> Gundogan in the number six position, now that you've kind of lived with what happened against Hoffenheim. Is that something realistically looking at the second half of the season you'd be comfortable with? Or are there weaknesses there that you kind of go, yeah, I'd still prefer to see Fernandinho in 80% of the games we play. Well, yeah, I'd obviously prefer Fernandinho because he does stuff no one else in the squad could do, but no. But also, yes, I'd be quite happy in loads of games for Gundogan to fill in. I think he played well. Uh, now, he doesn't offer, yeah, dynamism going forward that Fernandinho has added to his game, but then he also adds set pieces. Uh, he probably has, you know, if he did wander forward, he probably has got more of a goal threat. Um, mm. But if he's filling that role, he, he won't be doing that as much. Uh, but yeah, he offers like set piece deliveries uh, and other stuff that Fernandino doesn't. No, I'm, I'm, I'll be brief, obviously, because we've <laughs> we're fifty minute mark. But I absolutely have no problem with that. I think he, he did well in a Champions League game. You know that was not easy against a very offensively minded opposition. Uh, I'm quite happy with that. We don't. It just doesn't play enough for us to really know if he can nail down one position on this pitch. But I've always thought 
putting him further back might be the option, the, yep. the way forward. Yeah, I'd um, I'd go along with that. I think I think we underestimate just how good Hoffenheim are and were, and for him to play in that role in such a frenetic game and do do as well as I thought that he did do. Um, I, I'm frustrated that he didn't. He's not played in that position more, and I hope he will do in the second half of the season. Um, Steve, the Kyle Walker discussion is one which I feel is going to get um, going to be livelier as the season progresses. I feel like something's bubbling in this Walker conversation. Do you think people are being harsh on him? Yeah, I do. It surprised me. It's come out of nowhere for me, to be honest. Mm. Um, I feel a bit out of a loop. Um, because it's like it's happening in an alternative, alternative universe to me. I, I don't get it at all. Um, should Pap in the in the future decide to kind of bring in uh, another right back, um, then you know so be it. But right now he's our number one right back. He's one of the best right backs, um, certainly in Europe and and arguably the world. And he puts in consistently decent performances. I it's not a lot to add. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I just don't get it. It's, I, I'm kind of watching it like kind of like it's it's happening behind the screen. You know, it, it, I, I don't feel involved in it because I just don't understand it. Yep, everything's so black and white with so many people into it. You're either you're either world class or you're utterly useless. I mean, mm. we've discussed Sterling already, and it just seems you know maybe I'm just thinking of just trying to do some mental arithmetic. If Kyle Walker plays 40 games a season and stays on the pitch. Think about it and saying that's three thousand six hundred minutes on a pitch. Now over three three thousand six hundred minutes on a football pitch, I would expect him to be caught out of position occasionally. I would expect him to lose a marker. I would expect him to put some shit crosses in. Who doesn't? Uh, now maybe he does it too often. Maybe he's had his lulls. But yeah, and it's just people. I've seen people saying he just uses his pace to get out of position. Well, uh, to get out of trouble. Uh, well. People with pace use their pace for many reasons. <laughs> That's what pace is for. Uh, yeah. And he knows he's got it. So, you know, maybe he's in that position for a reason to offer something going forward, knowing he can get back. I don't, I'm not, I'm not convinced he's absolutely world class, but that defend, depends on your definition of world class. Is that two players in the world <coughs> in his position? It's such a vague term anyway. Uh, he's still the best right back in the Premier League, I think. So, how. Can't say he just relies on his pace. Yep, I don't. Spot on. Think you both. Spot we, we, we've on. seen we've seen wingers t- too scared to take him on. We've seen wingers after you know try for the first ten minutes uh, and then just give up the ghost and just kind of cut in or pass back to the, you know, they're scared of him because he just bosses them. Um, and we've seen that you know on numerous occasions. And that's what I want from a fullback. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. All right, lads. Um, two games to look at at the weekend. The City-Everton game we'll speak about last, but first, um, Liverpool play United at Anfield, I believe. Um, Howard, can Mourinho's team upset the Scousers no. for us? <laughs> no. Next question. Okay. okay. Seriously, I just... If it's you fine, looked, fine, you looked at this fine. fixture list at the beginning of the season and you think, well, you know, and if we'd known it's a City versus Liverpool title race, you think, well, this is the... This is the weekend where we could make some ground up or gain on them. Now, you think City have got the harder game this weekend. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm totally serious. I know the odds, <laughs> the odds go funny. against that. And because it's a sort of a derby for them, uh, you can say form goes out the window. But I just can't see how form goes out the window for the, this. I obviously didn't see him in Valencia. But apparently it was a new low, even by their standards this season. Now, maybe they've taken their eye off the ball, assuming Juventus will win. Knowing Liverpool's on the horizon, maybe they've just literally waltzed around the pitch. But I don't think they have. Literally, I just how do they hurt Liverpool? All we can hope for is a draw. All we can hope for is he spoils the game so much and gets and really parks the bus and sits his defence very deep. It negates their front. Uh, front three but I just mm. I can't I can't even see that he's just not even good at that anymore he always even when his teams weren't really performing he could always bring out a result like that but I think he showed at the Etihad he can't do that anymore if he was still capable of that he could have spoiled the Manchester derby 
last month or whenever it was, and he couldn't do it. And I just don't, I don't see it going very much differently at Anfield to how it went when they played us. Okay, I just, fair enough. Honestly, I, even taking all, you know, my pessimism, my natural pessimism away, I don't see. I mean, just look at, just look at the form of the players. It looks, oh, it's just. It's not a pub side. I'm not. I'm not even having a go to have cheap digs. It's. I want them to win. I know people think that's utterly, you know, blasphemy to say that. I want what's best for City in Me all too. results. Me and too. what is best for City is for United to win this weekend and not a threat Definitely. to us. And no, it's not happening. Okay, uh, Steve, are Liverpool in a false position in the league, or are they really that good? They're really that good. It's. It, there's no other way around it. Um, they really are that good. They're, they are the most complete Liverpool side since 2008 and they are not even firing on all cylinders right now. Now, people kind of assume from that that they will fire on all cylinders. That's not necessarily the case. They could go backwards, you know. They could kind of um, burn out. Anything could happen between now and, and May. But right now, as we're sitting here right now, they're, they're rightfully top of the league. They've done exceptional to kind of... Um, remain unbeaten to this point and it also has to be said I see a lot of Liverpool fans on Twitter really kind of talking their side up and you know that's their right and, and no problem with that whatsoever I haven't I haven't seen a great deal of overly infusive praise to, to Liverpool from non from the non-Liverpool press from the non-Liverpool writers in the press as well um, and I don't think that's fair I, I think the narrative I'll use the word again, but the narrative to this point has been that Liverpool have done exceptionally well to hang on to City's coattails. And I, I I think that's quite condescending, really. I think we deserve better than that. Wow. Gave you the opportunity yeah, yeah. to really, really uh-huh. lay into uh, to the Scousers there, mate. You've gone the other direction. I like I'm it, a, Steve. I'm a man of surprises. You are. I, I, I like that. I like that. Um, I think they're in a little bit of a false position in the league, if I'm honest with you. And the only reason I say that is because I think they've been lucky in a way that I think you I think you create your own look in most situations, but then occasionally you can just be stuffy. And I think Mares, you know, sending that penalty into the stratosphere was just stuffy. I think Pickford basically chucking the ball into his own <laughs> yeah, guess, It's just yeah. stuffy. So as much as I completely agree with how well they've done and 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 how they are maybe the best Liverpool team for 10 years, but they're not better than the City team. They haven't played better than the City team this season. And for me, they shouldn't be top of the league. And they're only top of the league because they've been a little bit stuffy um, and certainly been a little bit stuffier than us when you consider the fact that, you know, we dropped two points because a dude slapped the ball into the back of the net. Stuff like that that you just you can't control. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, it could be said, though, that stuffiness can persist over the course of the season. We've seen it before. We've seen oh, it totally. Before. Yeah. If it continues to persist, they're winning this league because, you know, at some point it's just written, but okay. Uh, right, City play Everton this weekend. Howard, you wanted to ask me a question earlier, so yes. maybe you should start by asking that question. Uh, I want to ask you a question about Everton. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> it. No, about City, yeah. Uh, you said earlier complacency that, you know, possible that City are in, you know, ahead in the table and we're just not used not to be. Could it not work the other way that we're now under big pressure playing first at the weekend, playing catch-up, knowing that if we don't win this game, uh, we're in big trouble because Liverpool can extend the lead thereafter. And we're not used to chasing down other teams, are we? Well, not not for a few years, anyway. Uh, obviously, last season, you know, this bunch of players won it. They were just ahead from the start last season. Uh, do you think they'll feel pressure to win against Everton? Um, I imagine they will feel. I imagine until the until the first goal goes in. Um, I imagine there will be pressure. I imagine it'll be nervy. Um, I think that we are in a position where I think it is true to say that because of the form that Liverpool are in, that in the same way that they look up, that they look at themselves and go, we can't drop any points because City will run away with it. 
we also have to pay them enough respect now to go, we also can't drop any points because the the they have the potential to run away with it. So yeah, I do I do think that there is pressure, but I think it's good pressure. It kind of goes back to the 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 conversation that we were having earlier. I think we need that pressure. I need our mind. I think our minds need to be focused on the job job in hand. And um, I think that you know the narrative around the club, around the team being perfect and unbeatable and untouchable, isn't necessarily a good thing for them on a week-to-week basis. Um, Steve, what would you, what, what, what do you think? What do you think of the job that Marcus Silva's done first, actually? Um, I think he's done an exceptional job there. Um, I, I would offer the caveat, and this is not to undermine anything he, he has done, but any manager worth their salt coming in at Everton would prove to be a huge upgrade on Sam Allardyce. So... In that regard, it was all laid out for him. He just had to put all the kind of tools together in the right order. Uh, but he's certainly done that. Richardson, uh, Richardson, sorry, has, has proved to be a really astute signing. There's a lot of hoo-ha about the, the, the kind of the fee, um, which I never really got because you saw that when he played on the silver at Watford, his stats were phenomenal, and he, you know, he's still at 21 years of age and. He had everything there, basically, with Charleston to be a success. That's proving to be the case. Um, and he's just playing all the right players in all the right positions and leaving out all the wrong players. And and it's working. So they, they were, apparently they were poor uh, against Watford in the week. Um, I didn't watch it, but an Evertonian kind of was texting me and, and you know he was bereft at how bad they were. So... Mm. Don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing as regards to coming into this weekend. Uh, well, I watched. Chelsea, well, I watched it. So, I what did you? They, think? I thought they were pretty good first half. I mean, they've, really? they, well, they're lively and dangerous. Yeah, there were a lot of uh, dangerous crosses put in uh, near miss. You know, just like playing not quite getting on the end of stuff. There were a lot of nearly stuff that could easily yeah. on another day be three goals. Second half, yeah, they were poor. So it was a very, very strange game in a way. Uh, for me, I think they could have been out of sight by half time, uh, but Watford, yeah, you know, and then he just totally regressed in the second half, and Watford were much better. So yeah, very depends which half you get out of them this weekend. Do you get the second right. half Everton or the first half one? So I think uh, I'm not sure that that's a good thing for City. I think that Chelsea were poor in the midweek in the run up to their league game, uh, and I think that Marco Silva's the type of manager that's not going to accept too poor poor performances on the bounce. I think they have made it really difficult for the big team so far this season. So yeah, just, I, I don't think, I don't think it'll be, I don't think it'll be easy for us. Let's put it that way. Do you think that, let's say that everybody who, let's say that nobody's recovered um, from midweek. Um, See, so I'll start with you just to kind of wrap this up. How do you, from a, from a selection point of view, how do you approach the game tomorrow? So the key the key positions for me will be left back, the number six and the number eight positions, uh, if nobody's recovered. How do you approach that? Um, well, when you say nobody was recovered, I, you, I'm assuming Delph is going to be available. Yeah, because Delph was available in midweek. Yeah, yeah. chose not to, to. So, yeah, well, that's a Delph for left back I would go for um, regardless. Um Oh, God, it's it's really hard. It's always hard to predict Pep's kind of lineups in, in the best of times, but because we there's, there's three or four players, we just genuinely don't know whether they're a going to start, b be on the bench, or c not feature at all. Mm. Um, I mean, Sergio is is a prime example of that. Um, but yeah, concentrating on the sixes and eights, then um, Gundogan would play, I think, over Foden. Um, and whether it's you know, at the expense of Fernandinho to kind of, you know, to play kind of in a holding role or whether it'll be more advanced. I would hope that Fernandinho is, is available to start and I would hope that the midfield would consist of Fernandinho, Gundogan and Bernardo. Okay. Um, Howard? Yeah, just change the full-backs. So I think we need a bit of defensive stability from Delph that Zinchenko will not offer. Uh, Walker comes back in, obviously, because Stone's at right back. Uh, Stones moves back into the middle so Otamendi drops out uh, and that's it because if you yeah you could put Gundogan further up to replace Foden and then you put in like Delph 
maybe as a defensive midfielder and Zinchenko at left back. Well, that doesn't work for me because I don't think Zinchenko's defensive. Uh, I mean, they're lively going forward. Yeah. So I prefer Delph at left back in a game like this. Uh, and Foden would get the nod. Uh, of course, we wait and see. Obviously, Silver's not going to be fit. Uh, if Aguero's fit, he replaces Jesus. I think <laughs> that's obvious. Uh, it, of course, it it kind of depends on Fernandinho being fit and ready and available. So, I slightly disagree. I've got a feeling that Guardiola's if Ferna, if Ferna's not available, I've got a feeling that Delph will will slip in there. I think that it'll be Gundogan, Delph, and and Bernardo as the as the central three, and I think Sinchenko ends up at left back. Yeah. Um, I think the reason for that more than anything is just because I think the way that Everton play, they sit very deep, very, very, very deep. Um, you could argue that they've got loads of pace on the right-hand side, our left with Walcott. But if you actually listen to what Evertonians are saying, they're saying the big hole in their squad right now is is the right side of the attack because Walcott has been their worst player. So I wonder whether Guardiola takes the point of view that he'd rather have Zinchenko and Delph and Gundogan to really just control the football um, or whether he'll go with Foden. I think that he'll uh, he'll plump for the experience. And I wonder whether I'm just saying that because I said that on Tuesday uh, earlier in the week and he played Foden. So I wonder if I'm just saying that in the hope that he, uh, that he plays Foden. Um, right, predictions and then we'll wrap this up. Steve? Score prediction, please. I think it's going to be a really tough game, um, but I think ultimately it'll be 3-1 City. Nice. Howard? Yeah, yeah same. 2-1 City. Okay. I think we'll keep a clean sheet. I think it'll be 0-0 at half-time, but I think in the second half we'll score two goals, so it'll be 2-0 to City. Uh, right, gentlemen, that was a mixed bag of a Friday show. Howard Harkin, thank you very much. A pleasure as always. Steve Tudor, thank you very much. Pleasure, mate. Everybody who listened, thank you very much. This was the Friday show on the 9320 podcast. We'll be back next Friday with another Friday show. We will be back next week with loads of shows on the 9320 player. So if you've not signed up, go over to our website, 9320.com. Check it out. In the meantime, be safe, be well, have a good weekend, and up the blues.